It's a great passage of scripture, isn't it? And it's really familiar to us. Most of us that have been Christians for a long time have been hearing that passage since we were uh, in Sunday school, thinking about it and reflecting on it. And there's great things that we can learn from this passage. And I'm probably not going to teach you anything new tonight. So you can all go to sleep now, and when I've finished in a bit. <laughs> no. let's, let's just have a little think. Can I have the PowerPoint up, please, Jim? That'd be great. Thank you very much. I just want to think a little bit tonight just about the idea of the worship that we bring to God and what it's like and what it means to worship God in spirit and truth, but also what it means to be able to bring God our everything. My wife doesn't like people dropping in on us unexpectedly. Is anybody else here like that at all? The reason that my wife doesn't like anyone dropping into us unexpectedly because we live in a home that's got a 20-year-old boy and a 14-year-old boy and me in it. And if you've ever seen my storeroom downstairs, you'll know that I am not the most organised and sorted of people. Very often. So my wife doesn't like it when people drop by unexpectedly because she's always frightened to open the door and let people see that we live like this. This is the normal that passes for my family home. Anyone else got one like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. John's going, yeah, great, good, okay. Now, I don't blame my wife for that. I totally understand that that is something. My wife had a father who was very critical of her, and even though we'd spent all of Saturday tidying up for his visit, when he turned up on Sunday for lunch or whatever, he would always find something to be critical about the state of the house. It didn't matter the fact it was ten times cleaner than it had ever been before. He would always find something to pick fault with. He was that kind of encouraging soul. Um, so I don't blame my wife for feeling like she, that, that that's like it is. But I, I wonder sometimes, do we ever approach God as if we kind of like... Um, yeah, I'm trying to bring the best bit of myself. So if you do come for a meal at my house at any point, or you have a pre-arranged time when you're coming round, you can rest assured that the house will be much tidier than it normally is, and you'll walk in and you'll go, what was he on about? That's because we've been frenetic, frenetically tidying up the place for two days before your visit or whatever. But I wonder sometimes whether we approach God in that kind of way sometimes, that we're kind of like slightly embarrassed that he might notice what we really like in the background or what we like when we're not in church with our best worshipful faces on or when we, you know, we haven't done all the housekeeping and repented of all the, the, the sins um, before we actually come to worship him, which are all good things to do but I just I want to think about that a little bit tonight but just a, a little bit of background because I know that most of you will be familiar with the ideas that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get on very well with each other. So, um, now this is a bit of a long-standing thing. Oh, I wonder what that was. You know those things that you find on the altar that you brought to have as a snack when you were getting ready before tonight? Yeah, sorry, there we go. It's my offering for later. Matt, you can enjoy that later. Thanks. 
So there's been a long-standing difficulty between the, the northern part of, of the, the kingdom of Israel and, and the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, and that's been going on for ages in one form or another. So the northern Samaritan bit of the kingdom and the southern Jerusalem bit of the kingdom. After the, the tribes split in two, tell me off if I bore you at any point, but after the tribes split in two, after Solomon's times, You've got this whole you've got this whole thing going on between the the northern and the southern kingdom and, and who's right and who's wrong and how they see each other and, and who feels that they've got God's will on their part of life and that kind of thing. And that what you need to understand about the Samaritans is is even now, even today, lots of the Samaritans trace their history and their ancestry back to the tribes that came out of that northern part of the kingdom and the, the tribes of, of Manasseh and Ephraim, some of them trace their lineage back through that and some of them trace their roots back to the tribe of Benjamin and that kind of thing and they feel very much a part of these were the people that came and they occupied the promised land and they set up places of worship and they kicked out all the enemies and they were part of this and part of this community and the Samaritans actually originally saw themselves as very much they were part of the 12 tribes and that was what they were. Now the Samaritans believed as well that actually they had the dibs on the first place of worship in the promised land. So that actually Mount Gerizim, not Mount Jerusalem, was the place that the original tabernacle was set up and worshipped. And it was only after Eli did the dirty on the priesthood and took some people away and set up an alternative one at Shiloh that actually there was any difference. So their place of worship, as far as they're concerned, is the original focus of worship of the whole Jewish community. This is important for what we think about in the future. Okay. So if you were a Samaritan, you believe that actually this mountain, where we are, that's the mountain we should worship on. Why? Because that's the original mountain that the people of God worshipped on. And you Jews over there, you've just kind of nicked off a bit and done an impersonation of it. And you're worshipping at this new place over there. We're worshipping at the original one. And therefore, our worship is the, the, the most authentic, if you like, in Judaism. This is where we're going to worship. And even after the tribes got taken into captivity and then came back, there was a core of people who stayed in Samaria and continued to try and worship God in the way that they always had done. And then when the Assyrians sent back all kinds of people, they intermarried and intermixed with them and brought back with them all kinds of other idol worship. But there's still a core in that community that believes that this is the place that worship should take place. This is the main focus where our nation should be worshipping God because this is the place where we started it all. And that's right. And it's very important to understand a Samaritan mindset because what the Jews thought about the Samaritans is the fact that actually after they'd been taken out of uh, Israel and gone into captivity and then they'd been sent back and then they'd interbred and intermixed with all these other races around them and then the worship got corrupted, they were basically just a bunch of half-breed idolatrous what's-its who were all messed up together. Yeah? 
And that, of course, the worship in Jerusalem was the true place of worship and the only place that you should worship. So you've got these two kind of different narratives going on all the way through this thing. And we miss this bit. If we miss this bit, we miss why it is that this woman suddenly comes along to Jesus and we skipped the, the previous bit that you all know about where, where Jesus asks her for a drink of water and then tells her that actually if she knew who it was that she was talking to, he'd give her living water and out of her soul would come a, a spring of water that would never run dry and all that kind of stuff that went on. And then randomly she goes, uh, he says to her, go and find your husband. Yeah, you all know the story. And, and, and he goes, no, that's true, you've got no husband because you've had five before and the guy that you're living with now isn't. At which point... This woman suddenly realises she's talking to somebody who knows stuff that only prophets know. Yeah? So she does, it seems like a random thing where she goes, Lord, you know, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? Which seems like a really random thing to do when somebody's just gone... Here's these other things I'm actually talking to you about. But it's not random at all if you understand the fact that the Samaritans believed that their worship of God was at least as valid, if not more valid, than the worship that went on in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem believed that its worship of God was far more valid than the worship that went on in Samaria. And so the two never mixed. Because they couldn't agree on whose way was right. What interests me in this is you've got a Samaritan woman who the first thing that she wants to ask when she realises that she's faced with the prophet of God is, who's right? Because this is so important, this is so foundational to my life, so fundamental to my way of being, so important to me in terms of what it means to be Samaritan versus what you Jews think about us. It's, it's, It's like, how can you, you know... So who's right? It's, it's the most important question. Am I honouring God in any way in my worship? Should I actually sack all this in and go and worship your way on your mountain? Or should you guys sack it all in and come and worship on my mountain? Worship is of real importance to this woman, which is why she does this random thing. And then Jesus answers, as we've seen, Believe me, workman, a time is coming when you worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Which, to her mindset, makes no sense whatsoever. Because it always had to be one or the other. You guys think you're right. My guys think we're right. Who's right? Jesus goes, neither. But we like that. We like our ways of worship. We like our styles of worship. We like our tradition of worship. We like our particular experience of worship. And we can get so caught up in that that if other people do it differently or it doesn't go quite the way that I think it should, we feel that something's wrong and something's out of whack. So who's right and who's wrong? Neither of you. You worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. That's great, isn't it? 
So all of that effort and all of that time that you put in and all of that history that you back to, you're worshipping what you don't know. Um, by the way, we Jews worship what we do know because salvation is coming out of the Jews. But it's still not this mountain or that mountain. It's something completely different because it's about me, Jesus is saying. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. So let's just think for just a couple of minutes just about what those things mean. What does it mean to worship in spirit? And here's a few suggestions. And we could do this interactively, but most of you look like you're dozing off. So, so. So what does it mean to worship in spirit? One, it means by the presence of the Spirit of God within us. What makes us Christians? That was a non-rhetorical question. What makes us Christians? <laughs> Fundamentally, what makes us Christians is that we're people infilled by the Spirit of God. Yeah? What makes us truly Christians? We're people filled with the Spirit of God. How do we know that we're Christians? Because it's the witness of the Spirit of God within us that says that we belong. It's the Spirit within us that cries out, Abba, Father. Yeah, we're your children. Yeah? It's possible to follow Jesus and not be a Christian. Paul met up with a few of those outside Ephesus, if you remember. When he suddenly goes, he's been talking to them for a bit and they're trying to follow Jesus and he goes, Ah, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? They go, never heard of the Holy Spirit. Because Paul could immediately spot the difference between someone that was doing their best to live a good life in Jesus' way and someone who was filled with the Spirit of God. And actually, it's the Spirit of God who connects us to God Spirit to spirit. Without the Spirit of God, we're lacking that connection. We're just like anybody else. So the essence of who we are, the very deepest bit of ourselves, our spirits, has to be empowered and imbued with the Spirit of God for us to be truly Christians and truly connected with God. Because it's the Spirit that leads us in our worship, yeah? And leads us in our lives. Offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, but lives that are empowered by the Spirit and infilled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Remember, how many times in the Bible does it say to us that Jesus led by the Spirit, yeah? Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And all of that. If Jesus needs the Spirit to do the will of his Father, how much more do we need the Spirit to connect with him. It's him that gives us that connection. But it's also him that actually empowers us in our worship and gives us gifts which we share that are a sign of his presence amongst us and also a means of blessing and encouragement to one another. Yeah. So it's the Spirit of God at work in us that allows some of the stuff to happen amongst us, like was happening last week, like happened the week before and that kind of thing, where we open it up and people are getting words and pictures and sharing testimonies that are connecting with other people and we're getting tongues and interpretations and all these things are the work of the one spirit within this bit of the body and it's part of our worship of God as we actually interact 
with the Holy Spirit and he empowers us to do the things that we couldn't bring to God without it. And we get blessed. I'm going to say as a byproduct, but that's not really true. But as part of that, we get the blessing of actually cooperating with the Spirit. And I was loving it the last couple of weeks, just hearing people bring in things out of the, that you guys are wonderful. But when you bring something from God, it blesses me as one that encourages me. And I'm hearing the prophetic voice of God to his people from within us as a people group. It's lovely that we're small enough in this kind of environment to be able to do that. It's a great thing to do. So the Spirit of God within us, empowering us, gifting us, is the way that we are connected to God. And therefore the only way that we can really worship God honestly and truly, because it's the Spirit that brings us revelation, but it's also the Spirit that actually empowers us to give something back to God and back to each other as an act of worship. That... Um, yeah, we get blessed in that kind of way. So it's not emotion. <laughs> yeah, it's not what we feel like. Yeah. Oh, it was a great time of worship tonight. What did God say? I've no idea, but it was a great time of worship tonight. What did you say? No idea, but it was a great time of worship tonight because I felt like it was a great time of worship tonight, and it was wonderful. What's a great time of worship? One which is empowered by the Spirit of God, where you have a connection with God. And what we really mean by that is, I felt the connection with God tonight as I came before him and worshipped him. And one of the things that marks us out, I think, as a church, and one of the things that we really want to be, is a people who are camped around the presence of God and where God's presence is powerfully felt in our midst. Not that just we operate gifts, but there's a sense of the fact that God gets to speak in to the midst of us and to us and through us and it's not just the feeling so whether I felt it was good <laughs> tonight doesn't actually matter yeah? if it's true worship in the spirit it's good I may be out of whack with the spirit and not sensing it and therefore it's perfectly possible to go home and go I just didn't connect with that tonight that's okay, that's fine but to go home and go for Worship wasn't very good tonight. That's your fault. Maybe. Maybe not. But it's important to think about, isn't it, sometimes? Because we can easily go and go, oh, Meg's guitar was just so out of tune tonight. I just, you know. what? We try and work hard not to distract you from the one that we've come to worship, but don't let anything else pull you away. So feelings are part of the consequence of being in the presence of God and being full of the Spirit and His work. Let's just think for a minute about truth because I'm not going to be too long. Whoop, there we go. Pilate famously asked Jesus, famously asked Jesus the question, what is truth? <laughs> yeah? What is truth? So what does it mean to worship in truth? Primarily, I think it's about these things. The truth of who God is. Who is God? What's he like? What's his character and nature like? Is he a wrathful, vengeful God? Is he a loving and compassionate Father? Does he deliver people? Does he judge people? Does he... And all of these things that seem to be... What was the word from this morning? Juxtapositioned. 
against each other. Because actually we don't like to think about or talk about God being a God of wrath. But actually if you take wrath out of God's nature in, in, in terms of the way that he looks at sin and the destruction and the, the damage that it causes across the world, it would be entirely wrong to think God just loves everybody. doesn't matter what they do, doesn't matter what they say, doesn't matter what they think. That may be true. But you can't say that without going. But God is actually not happy with everything that goes on in his world or the way that people behave. So we want to be people who worship God for who he really is. And we need to make sure that our songs and the things that we say and we, we profess are as close to what God is truly like as we possibly can. Who we are. Have you ever tried to be a really good Christian? I think I spent the first couple of years of my Christian life trying to be a really good Christian. Flipping like it's hard work. Yeah? Trying to live in your own strength as a Christian is exhausting. That's why we need the Spirit of God. So, if we're not living according to the Spirit of God and we're doing this in our own strength, it is utterly exhausting. So, around about the time I got married, I I remember actually making the decision, I'm going to stop trying so hard, Lord. Because if this is real and this is you, then you're perfectly capable of transforming me from the inside out. You don't need me to try and do it from the outside in. It was an incredibly releasing thing and it enabled me to be honest about where I was really at and going, you know, honestly, Lord, I don't want to do this now. Or I'd rather do this other thing. So there were several times in my early Christian experience where I really wished I could not be a Christian anymore. Is that a heretical thing to say or not? I, don't, I didn't ever really want to be there because what I couldn't deny is the power of my conversion experience and the spirit of God at work in me. But trying to live it out in your own strength is just darn so easier to forget this and go with the flow. Isn't it? it just, just, you know, we'll just go along with it and, and, and not actually work too hard. But trying to be honest about who we are before God is really sensible. In fact, it's the only way to be. This whole idea of being the redeemed because we're not who we were. Do you know that? Have a quick look around. You're not who you were. (laughs) Before you were saved, you were not who you were. You've been made something else. And the Bible says all of these incredible things about what the children of God are like. What the people of God are like. You know, glorious warriors, dressed in armour, courageous people martyrs and saints do you think of yourself as a saint I hope you don't think of yourself as a martyr yet although my mum was pretty close so um, are we recording this probably right okay but we are all of these incredible things that God has made us and yet we know that we are and yet we don't live in it all yeah we are overcomers we can do all things in Christ. Yeah? And all of these other fabulous promises that we've got, and yet we're living in that tension between we are these things, and you're actually trying to live in all of these things, can be really difficult. So one of the things I think about worshipping truth is be honest before God about where you're at. 
Don't be like my household. You feel like you can't let God fully in because it's just too messy in there. Yeah? Forget the mess and just open the door anyway. Yeah? Worship God with the reality of who you are and the mess that you find yourself in. So we're not going to worship God as we want him to be or we imagine him to be. We're going to worship him as he really is. And this whole idea of all that I can bring to God, I bring to God. Yeah. Acknowledging the fact that some stuff, I want to bring it to God. I want to worship him with it. But actually that's really hard. And especially if you're trying to worship him in situations and circumstances which are really dark and difficult. It can be really tough. But it's part of what it means to worship in truth. That we worship God with all we are, with all the good bits and all the best bits and the lovely things that we are and the truth of who we're made in Jesus. But we also worship him with the busted bits and the knackered bits and the dysfunctional families and the relationships that are strained and the complexities and our own desires for other stuff and other things. We can bring all of that before God because actually he's not waiting for us to clean house before he accepts our worship. He's not going to be like my father-in-law and come in and go, you could have cleaned that up before I came. This whole idea of a broken hallelujah is this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's got to be one of the best verses ever in the Bible, hasn't it? While you were still in all of that mess, without even an inclination of bringing your worship to God. Jesus died for you just to create the possibility. And so because of that, we can know that we don't have to clean house and we don't have to clean our act up before we come and worship God. I love to go for a run and pray. It's one of the things I do. I think the more my body's engaged in one thing, the freer my brain gets. Yeah, sometimes it may drift off a little bit and be in danger of falling out completely. But there is that kind of thing sometimes. It's like, And one of the things I will do when I'm doing that is I will talk to God about where I'm really at on various things. And I will ask him for the things that I need. But I also confess to him that some of the things that I know I need aren't the things I want. Does that make sense? I don't think God's scared of that. Sometimes in my work with young people, I find young people who are really angry with God about things. I don't think God really worries about that either. What he wants to hear from that young person is, God, I really can't stand you at the moment because you let this happen. Because actually, if you're honest, and you can go, Lord, I'm not going to worship you because you let me down on this thing. It's an honest response to God if it's the way you feel. I don't think God wants us to come to him going, Lord, you're wonderful, you're perfect, everything is fantastic, you do all things well, where really there's a secret bit of ourselves going, you let me down on that one. Or flipping out, why couldn't you just pull your finger out on that? Yeah. Isn't it about time? God's got big enough shoulders to cope with all of those things. That doesn't mean we should spend our whole lives whinging at him. 
But it does mean that somewhere in that mix of glorifying God in the truth of who he really is, that he is good and he will bring all things together under one head and every tear will be dried. It's okay to say I'm still crying at the moment. Yeah? Because it's not there yet. And that's part of what it means. I believe that God wants us to bring the whole of ourselves in worship. The good bits that we think are presentable and the broken bits that we think shouldn't be there somehow because of all he's done for us. There's a line in a song I like, you saved every part of me. What a great thought. Jesus has saved every part of me. All of the good bits and all of the bad bits too. And the bad bits are getting fixed and one day will be fixed completely. But he's not waiting. Yeah. There's not some bit of Meg which is saved and some bits of him which aren't yet. All of Meg is saved for the future. The good bits and the bad. So let's bring our broken hallelujahs to God. And uh, we're going to enter a time of communion now. And let's actually just reflect on that for a minute. Say, Lord, even as I come to this table... The bread and the wine that we see before us say that Jesus saved me while I was still a sinner. He didn't ask me to clean my act up so I'd be worthy to come into his presence. He saved every part of me. And now he welcomes every part of me. The fixed bits and the bus bits to share in this table. And to share in our worship of him. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that you have saved every part of us and that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, the worship that you want is that that is truthful and that which is inspired by your spirit. And you want our spirit to cry out with your spirit, Lord, for the things that need fixing and the things that are busting us. And you want us to cry out for the truth of who you are and the glory that is found in Christ, and so many other things. So Lord, help us never to hide. Help us to feel that we can't let you in fully, because you wouldn't like what you see. Thank you that you see us completely, and you saved us anyway. And now you welcome us to your table, and you welcome us to your presence. And you welcome us to come and celebrate that you love us beyond measure as we are and you will continue to work with us and in us to shape us into your image. Amen. Amen.